0: Hi, my name is Yvonne, and I am an alcoholic. Uh, I'm gonna steal this. There we go. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'd like to thank Jeanette and Mark for inviting me to uh, to come out here and uh, participate, and uh, Bernadette for picking me up from the airport, and Mandy for taking me to the meeting last night. It's just it's been great here in uh, in Monroe, Michigan. I've never been here before. And, uh, and everyone is, uh, has been very kind, um, and I love that. And I'll tell you, you know, Dick said it right away, too, and um, I try to say it right away, too, when I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at the podium, and, and that is that I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I, um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and you'll hear, because I'm going to share with you in a general way uh, what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now to the best of my ability. <laughs> anyway, um, that uh, that I had nothing good going on in my life prior to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I couldn't count uh, good things in my life on one hand, and, and I have an amazing life today. And, uh, and more importantly, I have um, tools for living that I didn't, even, I didn't even know were part of the deal. <laughs> I didn't know that, um, that I could be comfortable in my own skin. It never occurred to me. Um, you know, I just thought other people were born that way, and I wasn't. And um, and I know that everything good in my life today is a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and that's why I, I love AA the way I do, and, and I would like to tell you, though, if you're, um, if you're new, welcome, and, um, and I, want, I want you to know right off the top that I didn't come here wanting to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, um, I would have rather done anything <laughs> just about than go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I hated my first AA meeting. And uh, I was uh, what I remember about it is that it was a true Episcopal Church in downtown Fairfax, Virginia. I was 13 years old. Uh, my mother sent me, <laughs> and uh, everyone sat around in a circle and they smoked cigarettes in the meeting back then. Um, and I don't remember hearing anything about the book Alcoholics Anonymous or the steps or sponsorship or the traditions or any. I mean, they may have talked about those things. I am I wasn't interested in an AA meeting. I just remember thinking. Um, I remember thinking that if people were in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, they must be pretty bad. And, um, and I saw this kid, and, um, and he was 17 years old, and I thought he was cute. And so I went up to him after the meeting, and, and I asked him if he ever killed anyone. <laughs> and he told me he had, and I thought he was cool. And um, that's <laughs> that's my, uh, my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, you know, I was... I was raised in a... Um, my, my family's perfect, to tell you the truth. Um, I'm the only alcoholic in my family. I'm adopted if you care. It doesn't really matter to me, but, um, you know, if you're interested in the genetic aspect of it. I'm the only alcoholic in my family. My parents are devout Roman Catholics. Um, my mom died when I was five years sober, but they married when my mother was 20. When she died at 58, they had been married 38 years. My, my father is the first man my, other, my mother ever kissed, and they were engaged before that happened. And, um, and that's a true story, and that's the way that my mother lived. And my father is 75 years old today, and he goes to Mass every single day, every day. And uh, and, uh, and religion always did for them what AA does for me today. And, um, and I, I, you know, it didn't make any sense to me, but, you know, if, uh, if, if a good family could prevent me from being an alcoholic, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, but... When I, was, uh, when I was growing up, I, um, I didn't like the Catholic Church, and, um, and I don't have a problem with the Catholic Church today, but I just remember I hated sitting through Mass. I thought it was boring, and, and frankly, meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous seem much the same way to me. And so my pattern when I was new is that I would sit as far back as I could in the meeting, and um, I mean the furthest corner, and I would try to arrange myself just right so that I could maybe sleep during the meeting. And um, <laughs> I... Um, just not interested in AA at all, and you know, I want. If you're new, I want you to know that um, that I learned one of the import, most important things that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was new, and that is that it doesn't matter what I think, and it doesn't matter how I feel. <laughs> the only thing that's mattered to me in Alcoholics Anonymous are the actions I take. And I didn't want to be here, and I hated AA, and I didn't want to be sober, and. Um, <laughs> And my, I got an active home group, and my sponsor and my home group got me physically busy, <laughs> you know, beside my own best thinking, and they got me physically sober, and my mind followed, and, um, and because my life was so great, um, I, you know, over a period of time, when my life became great, I fell in love with AA. And uh, w- one more thing on that topic. When I got sober, um, the only reason I went to um, <laughs> meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous is because Child Protective Services required it um, in order for me to get custody of my little girl back. And um, and, uh, and my counselors used to say that um, if you don't get sober for yourself, you can't stay sober. And I'm telling you right now, when I got sober on February 10th, 1994, I was 21 years old and I did not get sober for myself. I wasn't interested in it at all. All I wanted was my daughter back, and my big plan was that I would stay sober long enough to get them off my back, and then I would be back out. And I'm so grateful today that it really doesn't matter why I get sober. What matters is what my body is taught to do. And I was taught to go to seven meetings and have commitments and pick up new people, and I got busy, busy, busy in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started to conform to AA. You know, I started to, uh, to, for example, drop the ANDA and just be like everyone else, and, um, and my life got really good. Um, anyway... I already told you I was um, born in this perfect family. <laughs> I am. Um, I was born in Los Angeles, California. Now, I, to tell you the truth, my sister is not very perfect, but um, <laughs> she's not as bad as I am. <laughs> my brother is perfect, though. I mean, perfect. My brother is perfect, and uh, married his college sweetheart. They have three kids. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, they bought a house and lived in it. I mean, I, I, I don't. <laughs> but, I don't know how you do that, but, um, (laughs) well, I was over 10 years sober before I knew how you did that, but, uh, well, not the married part. (laughs) I may learn one day yet. (laughs) Anyway, um, my sister, though, uh, my sister, I believe my sister is described in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My sister is eight years older than me. Um, she, uh, when she was 12 years old, she was 5 foot ten and a half. and a half, so boys always thought she was older than she was, and um, my sister was gorgeous. Um, you know, she's a beautiful woman, but I just remember being a little, 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 little girl and looking up at my sister and wanting to be just like her. I idolized my sister, and, and like I said, I think my sister is described in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and it says that in our book it says that there is a certain type of hard drinker and it says something along the lines of that those people may look like alcoholics but what differentiates a drinker of that type from an alcoholic of mine is that those people if they're given a sufficient reason they're able to stop or moderate their drinking and that's my sister she was 12 started partying got a lot of trouble ran away from home I mean I would have never done that (laughs) and uh you know she got like I said she got into trouble and um And somewhere around uh, 16 or 17 years old, she got thrown in one of those scared, straight teenage drug rehab programs. And um, she came out of that, you know, without, you know, she didn't go to a 12-step program. And um, uh, she didn't need ours for sure. but (laughs) Maybe another one. But... um, She got out of there physically sober for about six years and ever since then she's been able to drink like a gentleman. And, and I don't understand that. I don't understand growing out of uh, drinking alcoholically. Um, now my sister uh, just marries alcoholics and, um, <laughs> and breeds them. <laughs> um, my sister got me drunk for the first time when I was four years old. And, um, my mom lived at home. I mean, my mom, I, yeah, my mom lived at home, but I mean, my mom was home. My mom didn't go to work. I had a very, you know, traditional, standard Roman Catholic upbringing, and um, and it's not like I got to run off with my sister a lot or, like, my mother wasn't around watching. My mom, you know, she was. She was a, she was a very good mom, but... Somehow, um, somehow, occasionally, I would get to go out with my sister, and my sister would get me drunk. And, um, and my sister's appalled when she talks about this today, because um, <laughs> she thinks she caused my alcoholism. <laughs> but uh, just like an Alanana. <laughs> um, I, I've tried to tell her that she probably saved my life, but um, she doesn't understand that. Um, Anyway, my sister got me drunk for the first time when I was four years old, and I don't specifically remember the circumstances surrounding the first time I got drunk, but I do remember being very, very little and being with my sister and being around, like, she always dated these really big guys and, like, being around a, a bunch of big guys, and I remember wanting to feel like a part of, like, I just always wanted to be just like my sister, and, and, um, and I remember... Um, I remember feeling the magic of alcohol. You know, in the doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. But if you read that sentence in the context of the paragraph, they're talking about us, you know, us alcoholics. And, um, and I have never understood that sentence because I don't know why else you drink. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And... I mean, the <laughs> that's the point, you know, I um, never wanted to know what kind of wine went with salmon or <laughs> prime rib, you know, um, I drink because I love the way that alcohol makes me feel, I love being intoxicated, and, and, um, and I remember that feeling when I was little, I love that, um, and I also remember my sister took me to, um, to a party, I don't know, maybe it was a couple times, I don't recall, but... Um, but what I remember is my sister, um, took me to all these big guys and she said, you know, my little sister can drink you all under the table (laughs) and they laughed. but, um, they would line up cans of beer and I remember being able to drink and, um, and I got, um, you know, I was, oh, I just, I loved it and, um. When I was eight years old, my parents uh, did a geographic. They um, wanted to move out of Los Angeles. We moved to s- suburban Virginia, Fairfax, Virginia, outside of D.C. My parents knew that my sister would straighten out if they could, you know, move us out there. And, um, and in fact, you know, that's pretty much what happened. She went to that rehab and, and came out normal. And, um, <laughs> or as normal as. <laughs> um, and uh, I um, I never... Um, I never felt like I fit in and you know, I, I don't, um, I'm quite sure today that it really doesn't have anything to do with moving, but I remember the feeling for the first time of not really feeling like I fit in. And I remember like when I think back to like 11 is when it really began to hit me. And, and from time to time, like I said, I got sent to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 13 years old and, and I would be sent, you know, from by various people throughout, you know, the, the few years until I got here when I was 21. Um, and um, and I never identified with the way people drank for one thing. I mean, not especially then, and um, and especially because I was never honest about anything, um, even to myself. Um, but the one thing that I did identify with in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous is that they would um, I would hear people talk about sometimes feeling different from other people, and and I remember hearing someone say one time um, in this sobriety, not back then, but someone saying like they spent their life waiting for the spaceship to land. And, uh, and I didn't have that particular feeling, but I related to that. I knew what that meant. And I just, I felt like, like, and I, like I said, somewhere around 11, I felt like there was a glass wall between me and everyone, and I felt like everyone else fit together, and I couldn't seem to fit in with anyone and as an adult looking back now, I'm, I'm quite sure that I fit in fine, but that wasn't my perception. And so <clears throat> from the time I was 11 on, I lived with this sense of fear and impending doom all of the time. As much as I you know, acted tough or friendly or you know whatever, be a cheerleader, you know, whatever it was, I still always felt this sense of fear and impending doom. Because I knew that at any moment, the kids I was hanging out with, they were going to realize that I wasn't really like them. And I was so afraid of them catching on. And, and I love our literature. And um, I, when I read um, Step 5 in the 12 and 12, I read the description of how I feel like I felt as far back as I can remember. And it, it describes it as anxious apartness. And I would have never put those two words together. But when I read them, I said, yes, that's precisely how I have felt my whole life. Anxious apartness. Um, and, uh, and alcohol, alcohol took that away. When I, uh, when I drank alcohol, and I'm like one of those kids who you know, we go to the weekend parties, but I always have to figure out ahead of time how I'm gonna get a fifth of a wild turkey or Jack Daniels. I can never rely on the fact that they may have enough alcohol at the party. I've got to have my own fifth every single time. Because when I drank, and it's not like I drank to excess every time. In fact, um, the way that I drink, I don't much like the feeling of being completely out of control but what i um but when i start drinking i finally feel like i can talk to people and i fit in i feel like i'm thin enough i'm pretty enough i'm smart enough i can it just i feel okay as long as i have alcohol and um and so, you know, in high school, junior high and high school, I, did, I didn't get into a lot of trouble. You know, I got through school. <laughs> I was, a, you know, like most of us, I was a kid with a lot of potential. Um, I graduated 225 out of 450. <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> you know, and, um, and uh, when I was in high school, though, um, I got involved in our drama department. <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine, but... Um, <laughs> And I thought for the first time, oh, I get it. You know, I'm an actress. (laughs) And uh, that means I have an artistic mentality. Of course I wouldn't fit in with people who live in Fairfax, Virginia. There's no artists here. (laughs) And I... uh, from the time I was about 13, I became obsessed with the idea that if I could just move to New York City, I would find my people and I would fit in. And, and, uh, and I was obsessed with it. I would go up to audition for things. And, um, you know, I tried everything I could. I wanted to move out of home early, you know, and I just didn't have the means to do it. Um, but I ended up going to New York City. I was uh, 17 years old when I graduated high school. And um, I had gotten a scholarship to uh, go to New York University to study at Tisch School of the Arts up there. And I, um, you know, moved into the one of the NYU dormitories and went to study at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. And, you know, my family was really proud of me. I know today my mom was terrified, <laughs> um, but my family was very proud of me. And, you know, my mom got the U-Haul and drove her daughter up to, you know, her baby up to college. And, you know, it was really exciting for me. And. Um, I loved the idea of going to NYU and studying acting, but what I loved even more than that was the fact that I no longer needed a plan ahead of time to drink alcohol. (laughs) Because in DC, I always had to, you know, get the college guys across the street to buy it for me. So I had to track them down, give them money, wait for them, you know. Or I would have to drive into like, you know, the bad neighborhoods in southeast DC and find the liquor stores that, you know, didn't ID minors. (laughs) And, uh, but it always took planning, whereas when I got to New York City at 17 years old, um, you know, 1990 is, is when that was, so the streets looked a little, little different in 1990 than they do today in New York City. Um, you know, I could walk into any corner store and, and buy liquor. I could buy, walk into any liquor store and buy booze. I could go to any bar and order drinks, and no one ever ID'd me. And so, and then... You know, even more exciting than that is that the clubs there don't close till 4 o'clock in the morning, and then there's after-hours ones, and they close at 6, and then they're the illegal after-after-hours ones, <laughs> and they go, you know. And, like, once you're in on that, there's no way you can't go because it proves you're cool, right? I mean, what better way to be validated than to, <laughs> you know have entree into that. So, you know, what would happen is I would party all night and every day the same thing would happen. I would wake up and I would intend to go to school. No, I wouldn't wake up, but, you know, the night before I would intend, you know, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go to class. I'm going to start tomorrow and and I would sleep all day and I would wake up and I would think it's too late anyways and I would go back out to the club that night and I would think tomorrow, tomorrow you're going to get up and go to class. It's going to happen tomorrow and and day after day after day, I mean, sometimes I got to class, but I ended up uh, losing the opportunity to study at NYU after one semester. <laughs> and uh, when I got my transcripts, when I um, when I got sober and decided to go back to school, when I got my transcripts, I had like um, I think it was like a two point you know one GPA, which I I know there are many people here who I'm sure who have had worse GPAs, but I only had one academic course. <laughs> Everything else was like dancing and singing and tai chi chuan. I, you know, I just <laughs> you get an A for showing up, I'm sure. But, um, and then my mother explained to me she wouldn't send me money if I, um, you know, if I wasn't in college. I remember trying to tell her that artists don't have to go to college. <laughs> but um, my mom had, um, when, when my sister had gotten into a little bit of trouble, she had started going to something called Tough Love, and um, <laughs> and I guess it was working that day because. Uh, she said, I'm, I'm not sending you any money. And I remember thinking that was really unfair. Now, you know, as an aside now, um, as an adult, my father had a devastating brain surgery when I was 11 years old. And up and until that time, he had been the sole provider of our family, and he was not able to work again. And my mother, you know, had not worked her adult life, had gotten a job as an administrative assistant. And I cannot imagine today what she did to save up money to send me money every month to live off of. I had no appreciation for that whatsoever. Um, prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and for some time into it, all I could ever do is just take. You know, I'm, I've always been a taker. And, um, and, you know, that's what I was. And my mom put her foot down that day. And and I went through a series of uh, working at, you know, various restaurants. And, um, and I would get fired because, you know, the same thing happened with restaurants that happened with college. You know, I would intend to get up. I You know, tomorrow I'm going to go. And then I wouldn't go. And they don't, they don't keep you on. <laughs> there are plenty of unemployed actors. So, um I remember uh, I was out of a job and I was paying for my own apartment now and um, and I pulled out the paper and I was trying to look for, you know, waiting jobs and I noticed this ad and it said that they were looking for uh, cocktail waitresses and dancers. And I remember thinking, well, that's kind of odd, but, um, you know, it's New York City and I kind of pictured, like, something theatrical. <laughs> I had... You know, I like to think of myself as worldly. The truth is, as I was a very, you know, I came from a very, very square, you know, family. And um, <laughs> uh, I turned 18 by the time, and um, I, I went to this neighborhood. You know, I, there was just an address. I didn't even have the name of the fine establishment in the paper. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> which would have given me a clue, by the way. But um, <laughs> I... Um, I went to the, the address in the paper and I had never been in that part of town before. Um, it was around 42nd and 8th. <laughs> and when I got there, it's like, oh, what? <laughs> It had this big neon sign and, you know, with the silhouette of a woman, topless, and um, it was called the Star Club. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I walked into the Star Club and um, I was instantly appalled. Um, <laughs> I had uh, never seen a strip club in my life, but if I could have pictured one, it would have looked like this. Um, <laughs> um, it, was, um, it was like a dark, dirty shotgun bar, and, um, and this place didn't have a liquor license. Um, <laughs> it was the, uh, the end of the line for the, um, the strippers, and... <laughs> <laughs> A quick glance at the stage, you know, indicated to me that the dancers at the Star Club were all past their prime. <laughs> 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 if I ever drink again, um. <laughs> uh, and I, oh, I remember. Th- I mean, it was. just, I thought it was disgusting, and I'd never seen anything like that. And I was about to turn around and walk out, and. The manager, Tony, walked up to me, and uh, Tony's like, you looking for a job? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I'm a cocktail waitress, and um, he says, you're hired. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So he tells me, you know, I come in the next day at a certain time. And I remember leaving that place and thinking, I will work there for two weeks. Two weeks is the maximum. And that was a rule I set for myself. That rule was supposed to incentivize me to get up in the morning and go out and look for a real job. And I <laughs> go into the Star Club that first night, and, and that first night... Um, I found out what cocktail waitresses do at the Star Club. What we really do um, is, uh, (laughs) you know, a man seats himself at the bar, and then I'm to go to, you know, sit next to him and engage him in captivating conversation. And then (laughs) the bartender will come over and say, would you like to buy the lady a drink? And he says, yes, that drink costs 20 bucks. I get a commission on it, and it gets him $8 of conversation with me. And I remember thinking, this is crazy (laughs) and uh you know they said you you know they're they're not supposed to put their hands on you and i thought yeah likely (laughs) right um and i mean it was terrible i thought that was the most horrible thing i could think of and um but that first night, um, my, uh, I don't know, my second or third uh, customer of the night was this, like, really young, handsome, rich Greek man. And I was like, I, you know, to him, like, I don't know what he was doing in the club. But, um, but he sat there, and he bought me drinks all night. I mean, all night. And uh, he, he never put a hand on my shoulder, nothing. He was a perfect gentleman. Like I said, I don't know what he was doing there. Um, and I remember walking out of there. I had, like, $160, and I remember thinking, oh, work here for two weeks. Are you kidding? I mean, if I, you know, make $160 or whatever it was, you know, I, I quickly calculated that I'd make more money than my father ever made as an accountant, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I thought, I love this place. And, uh... <laughs> And, uh, so, you know, the next night I go off to work at the Star Club, and, um, there was no young, rich, handsome Greek man, and, uh, you know, now I'm crying to my new best friend, Tony, about how bad it is, and, and he says, you know, if you dance, you'd make more money, and, oh, I can't do that, and, uh, he takes me in the back where they have a fifth of vodka, and I, you know, became a dancer at the Star Club. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I quickly learned that not all clubs look like the Star Club, and I, you know, I was, uh, 18 years old and in fighting weight back then, and, um, You know, uh, went on to work. You know, actually, I really, it was, I thought I wanted to be an actress. I love the power of that. You know, when I um, went on to other clubs and um, made, I mean, I made a lot of money. It was cash. I was 18 years old. I couldn't spend it as fast as I was making it. And for the first time, I felt like I was beautiful enough and powerful enough, and it was, seemed so validating to me at that time. And, and I'll tell you that if I could have, you know, bottled that power and that money in the way that I felt then, I, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for what I have today, to tell you the truth. And if you had asked me that six years ago, I probably wouldn't say that, but, um, but I wouldn't trade it for what I had today. But it was fun, you know. Where I got sober, I got sober in the D.C. metropolitan area, and I used to hear people say a lot of times at meetings, they would say that um, their worst day sober was better than their best day drinking and I used to try to convince myself that that was true and until I realized it you know I don't have to pretend that's true it isn't true it isn't true I don't want to give any newcomer the impression that you're not going to have bad 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 days you know when you're sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and I've had many fantastic days out there drinking I had a lot of fun it's not always fun when I'm sober you know life happens to me here sober just as it does out there and um and I had a lot of fun. I loved to drink alcohol. And uh, what happened for me to speed that up is, um, is I, you know, I still fancied myself an artist, although I wasn't doing anything. And um, the only thing I could think of was that I would try anything that sounded daring to me, you know, to, you know, expand my knowledge and, you know, as a true artist should. <laughs> and, um, and I found myself at 18 years old one night um, sticking a needle in my arm because, um, because I knew a girl who did that and I thought... Like, I thought heroin, and especially shooting heroin, was about the scariest thing I could ever imagine. The only thing that I knew about it was that um, when I was in middle school, I read a Judy Bloom book called Dinky Hooker Shoot Smack. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was just, it was like the scariest thing to me. And and so there I was at 18 years old wanting to try it because it was the scariest thing I could think of. And, And I always like to say, you know, I came up here this afternoon identifying as an alcoholic and um, and I want you to know I'm a garden variety alcoholic and I wouldn't ever want to give anyone the impression that if you don't suffer from the disease of alcoholism that we can help you here Um, I believe that we need to sit in the rooms where the where we hear the music of our disease and the solution for it Um, but I also like to say that um, For those who are like me, what happened to me, as I'm sure you can guess, is that I would, you know, find myself for the next couple of years getting physically addicted to heroin. And when I got physically addicted to heroin, I would quit drinking alcohol. And it was always the heroin that landed me up in detox. And I would end up at a detox. They would send us out, you know, to the local, you know, you know, Alano Club or that, you know, they would send us out, and I would go to a meeting. And it, you know, they, they didn't care where they sent us. It would be you know some twelve step program. But I would often find myself in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and someone would come up to me, at, you know, and I'd be <laughs> and they'd say, you know, are you new? And I would say yes. And they would say, are you alcoholic? And I would say, no, I don't even drink. <laughs> And uh, it would be true at the time, <laughs> and um, and that's as far as I got. And thankfully, um, this time when I got sober, my first sponsor, she just wanted to sponsor someone, is what she wanted, <laughs> and um, she uh, she attacked me, is what she did. <laughs> she told me, she told me she was going to sponsor me, and um, and I remember trying to like like first of all, one of the first things she had me do, um, because I was actually physically sober over a year, um, because I spent my first year in treatment, which I'll get to, but. Um, yeah, I was over a year sober, so she told me to write out a four-step. And I said to her, um, well, you know, I don't have to write a four-step because I'm not an alcoholic. And, uh, and she said her favorite words, which were, I didn't ask your opinion. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she was to say that many, many, many times to me. And, um, and she had me write out this inventory, and I'm so grateful. And I did the four columns as it's outlined in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Like I said, I'm so grateful for that because I had gotten a little bit of uh, treatment knowledge from when my sister was in treatment, and I knew I knew alcoholics mean, you know, you can say one day at a time, but what you really mean is forever. Like, you can't ever drink. I, I didn't get the concept of, like, we live one day at a time. Like, I thought you were trying to trick me into <laughs> thinking you only have to quit drinking for a day or something. But... Um, you know, I knew that if you're alcoholic, it means you can't ever drink again, ever, ever. And I just always remember, like, I couldn't imagine, first of all, going the rest of my life without drinking. And, um, and second of all, it just seemed to me that drinking never really got me into any trouble, <laughs> which wasn't true. And, um, and anyways, that's not a qualification for alcoholism. <laughs> um, I identify with our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, where it says that when I take a drink, I cannot control how much I drink or when I'm going to stop. Um, and that is true for me. That has been true for me since the time that I was very, very, very little. You know, when my sister went into that scared straight teenage rehab program, I was uh, almost nine years old, and, um, and I didn't have alcohol. I mean, maybe a sip of my dad's beer, a sip of my mom's wine, but I didn't have alcohol for a couple of years. And I'll tell you, when I was 11 years old, I spent the weekend at my girlfriend Heather's house, and uh, Heather's parents were out of the country for the weekend. And uh, (laughs) her older sisters were in high school, and they were supposed to be babysitting us. And Heather had a couple little girls over, and we were doing little girl things that weekend. But at some point, I don't know, I think it was probably Saturday night, I saw her high school sister sitting around the kitchen table, and they were drinking something called Seagram 7. And I hadn't been drunk in a long time, and I wanted to get drunk. And I remember distinctly having that thought at 11, I want to be drunk. And I walked up to those girls, and I put my hands on my hips, and I said, you know, I could drink you all under the table. (laughs) And they laughed at me but they gave me a liter of seven and seven. And, um, and I can't tell you anything that happened that night. <laughs> Apparently, I've been a blackout drinker since I was at least 11. What I can tell you is when I woke up the next morning, I was in my training bra, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and there weren't any boys in the house. It's not like anything inappropriate happened. I just, you know, that's how I wake up sometimes. <laughs> I found my clothes on the third level. I had urinated in them sometime during the night. So, you know, that's the way I drank as an 11-year-old. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't shoot for that. But the truth is, you know, I uh, <laughs> I like the feeling of being drunk. And But when I take a drink, I can't control how much I take. Or when, or you know, when I'm going to stop drinking. And sometimes I can go out and have a few drinks and have a good time and meet a good guy. And, you know, and it's great. And other times I wake up on the basement floor in a training bra and I just, I never know what's going to happen. And, and, I, and I started to put that together when I wrote that inventory for that woman. And I'll tell you that, you know, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, first of all, I, I would um, identify solely as a junkie. Um, I always personally thought that addict sounded kind of wussy. It was just what I thought. Um, I had tw- no offense to anyone here. I was 21 years old, and that's what I thought. And uh, an alcoholic, you know, I, I didn't really think, first of all, that I because I didn't understand what an alcoholic was. I mean, I thought, you know, I didn't understand, can't control the amount I take or when I'm going to stop. I think alcoholic is brown bag and raincoat and, you know, like <laughs> we see in the movies. Um, but um, totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Um, Yes, junkie, thank you. Um, When I was four months sober and I was still in that treatment facility, they sent me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was a closed discussion meeting and I identified as a junkie because I really needed to share that day and... um, My first sponsor, when I finally got one, you know, when she pointed herself to me, explained to me that meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous are for talking about the solution of the disease of alcoholism, and that if I don't have a solution, I should share my problem with my sponsor, and listen to a solution in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know that, but I, you know, I had to share that day. Um, I'm sure I had something really important to say. And um, when I identified as a junkie, the woman asked me who was leading the meeting, asked me to leave, and I remember being really offended by that. And she ended up on my fourth step, and um, and it was during the fifth step that my sponsor explain to me the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous and why junkies don't participate in closed meetings or any meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, and so when I got to AA, I started, okay, fine, I'm a junkie and an alcoholic, I'll do that for you, but I'm not going to drop the junkie thing because, you know, I had this idea, like, I know you guys got here on a little red wine, <laughs> but I was kind of, a, I was bad, you know. Um, the truth is I lasted out there two and a half years, but I was a legend in my own mind and I wanted you all to know it. <laughs> and uh, So I was a junkie and alcoholic and... When I did my fifth step with that woman, after my fifth step, she played a tape of a man named Johnny H. who was from Long Beach, California. And what I heard that man say was that as long as he was an alcoholic and a something else, that he was different from you. And that the program that worked for you might not work for him. And I remember thinking, and it's probably the first time I've ever been able to do an inventory myself, um, I remember thinking that's exactly why I say I'm a junkie, because I want you all to know I'm a little tougher than you are. And, um, and I had been around long enough. Like, I didn't know if I was really, really going to do AA, but there was something attractive here, and that's what kept me coming back night after night. And um, and I was afraid to be different from you guys, because I I thought, you know, I want to try and see if it works. And, um, and since the day I've done my fist up, I've been a garden variety alcoholic ever since. And I'm going to tell you that... Um, and I'll try to keep it as small a part of my story as possible, but, um, but some, some of the things I did, I can't tell without telling it, and, um, when I got physically addicted to heroin in New York City, I moved back down to D.C., thinking, you know, if I could just get away from the big city for a while, everything will be all right, and, and, you know, I brought me with me, and I'm, you know, down there, downtown D.C., trying to, you know, find the stuff, and, um, and within a couple of months, I discovered that, um, that I was pregnant, and, um, and I had been, uh, shooting heroin probably twice a week, and, um, the day I found out I was pregnant, um, I, uh, I quit smoking cigarettes and I quit drinking alcohol. And, um and i quit shooting heroin and uh, i went to the pediatrician 4 days or the you know obgyn 4 days later and she told me that i was 2 months pregnant and i had no idea and i i told her i said well i've been shooting heroin probably twice a week what's going to happen and and my doctor said um, well the greatest danger to a baby in utero during the first trimester from heroin use is spontaneous abortion but we still have a heartbeat so your baby will probably be fine and I was totally relieved, and then she said, um, do you need help? And I said, no, I, I quit four days ago, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I meant it, you know. I, am, I wanted to be a good mom. You know, I wanted to be a mom like my mom was, but cooler. I wanted to be cooler. <laughs> no polyester, but, but I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a mom like her. My mom's a great mom, and... Uh, and I had no intention of, uh, of ever doing that. And I was really sorry that I had been doing it at all. And, you know, I didn't know I was pregnant. And I can tell you that I stayed physically sober for for some months. I don't know very, I, I don't re- recall very much about it. I just know that somewhere between five and seven months pregnant, um, I was living in, you know, a <laughs> an interesting neighborhood in, um, in an interesting part of D.C., And every night I I was bartending at a club in DC, and I would get out of the cab and I'd see those guys on the corner. But every night I would just go straight in my row house, straight in my row house, straight in my row house. And this one particular night, after a week where it seemed like everything went wrong, I remember getting out of the cab and seeing the guys out there, and then thinking, you know, I'm just going to go say hello. And, um, and then I had that thought in the back of my head that said, that's not what you're doing. You know what you're doing. And I remember thinking, I don't care. And, um, and that night, somewhere between five to seven months pregnant, I started shooting heroin and smoking crack and drinking alcohol. And I began to use whatever substances I could with a desperation I could um, – I'd never experienced before because I couldn't stand being physically sober with the knowledge of what I was doing to my little girl and, um, and I don't know how long that went on for, but I know that the, uh, the next time I saw my doctor, when I walked in, I had, you know, the big swollen hands, and she said, um, I know you're shooting heroin, and you have three choices. You can um, keep doing what you're doing when your daughter's born. We're going to drug test her, and if she has drugs in her system, she will be removed from your custody. Or you can try to quit on your own, and your baby could die in the process. Or you can go on methadone and... And I went on methadone, and when my daughter was born, she had a detox in the neonatal intensive care unit for 16 days, and, and I was really sorry about that. And I had every intention of never doing that again. And I remember people asking me if I wanted to go off to a facility, and I said, no, if I ever, you know, if I ever think about doing that again, I'm going to picture her shaking in that little plastic tub, and I won't do it. And my daughter was released to me at 16 days old, and um, three days later, we were living in a crack house. And um, And for the first nine months of my daughter's life, the way that we lived was like this. I would um, move into a crack house with her. Now, my intention was to just go there, get something, and go back to my parents' house and, and, you know, do it there. But I would, like, go there and move in. I just, I don't have the ability to leave once I'm there. And every time I think, you know, that's the insanity, I I think it's going to be different this time. And so I would go move into a crack house, and often it didn't have windows or running water, and I was there with an infant. And, um we would live there for a couple of days, or a couple of weeks, or a couple of months, and then I would think, I can't live like this anymore, and I would call my mom, and she would come pick me up and take me to detox and take care of the baby, and when I got a detox, I would go stay with my parents again, and then one day I would think, you know what, we're just going to go down, pick something up, and I'm going to come right back, and it would happen all over again, and, and um, when my daughter was nine months old, I had been uh, working for an escort service, <laughs> and um, I got fired because I had track marks, and they have standards at those places, and um, I was... Uh, <laughs> at the time, paying this junkie woman, Tawana, $20 a day to watch my baby when I went off to work. And um, I remember, you know, crying to Tawana because I needed $200 a day, and, um, and I didn't know how I was going to get that if I wasn't working at the escort service. And Tawana said, that's not a problem. My brother Buttons is a pimp. We will page him, and you can go to work for him. And she-Page Buttons, and, um, and he took me on the streets of D.C. and explained to me how business works out there. And um, when I was new, someone gave me a tape of a man named Norm Alpe and he talked about seconds and inches. And I didn't get sober this night, but um, it certainly was my seconds and inches because um, the first car I got into, um, nothing happened um, except for that we argued for a few minutes over my value. <laughs> I felt, you know, I mean, he thought I was street price. I felt I was worth something more. And, um, and it's a good thing that nothing happened. I didn't have a dollar on me because there was a police officer in a car waiting behind me, actually a couple, and they put on their lights and asked me to step out of the vehicle. And I stepped out and said, um, it's not what you think. <laughs> How do I know what they think? Um, uh, but they ran my record, and I begged them not to arrest me. They ran my record, and because I had no priors, they agreed to let me go that night. But they said, go home. If we see you on the street again, we're going to arrest you on site." And Button said, you're too hot, go home, and I'll send someone to take care of you. And um, and, uh, no one came to take care of me, and I was really sick all night, and at 7.15 in the morning, I knew I just, I needed $20, and um, I called my mom, and because she was about to leave for work. And I was too ashamed to speak to her again, but when I heard her voice on the other end of the line, what I said was, if you bring me $20, I'll let you have the baby. And um, and my mom was more than happy to bring me $20. And my um, granddaughter went off to live in uh, in foster care, and my daughter, her granddaughter, um, and she was nine months old at the time and and very, very sick. She was very sick. And um, I, I ended up on the streets of Baltimore working out of the 408 show bar, show bar where they have back rooms for the customers to take the girls and where I got sober in uh, Fairfax Virginia they would read a portion of chapter three at the beginning of the meetings and I remember the first time I heard that expression pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization because I, I know what that feels like and um my mom called me in early February 1994 and I you know I just I never got to see my daughter I missed her first Christmas her first birthday I heard she was walking and um and I just wanted to see her again and uh, and my mom called me and said that um she had found a facility that took mothers and babies and if I was willing to go there I could have custody of my daughter in the in the treatment facility with me and I'll tell you I just if she had, I really believe if she had called me the day before I would have said no um, I don't know what would have happened the day after, but I knew that day I just, I just wanted to see my little girl again, and I didn't know a better way. And so I d- agreed to go in, and um, I checked into a detox first, and I don't count that as my sobriety. you know. They give you a lot of drugs. I always usually bring my own, because I don't like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I know that the day I walked out of there, which was February 10th, 1994, I was as physically sober as I um, as I am today. And um, that's the day I entered that facility. That's the day I got custody of my little girl back. She had um, had turned one January 21st, and when my mom brought her to me, uh, I hope I never forget, she was holding on to my mom, and she was screaming and crying for her mommy, and she was not talking about me. Um, <laughs> she had no idea who I was, and, um, and I... Um, so I went to this facility, and I was there for 14 months. And I remember um, inpatient for 14 months. And I remember telling them, because they would make us go to meetings, not a lot, because they really focused. You know, it was hard financially, actually, for them to get all the babies taken care of and get the moms out. But, um, you know, we went to one or two meetings a week, and I mean a month. And, um, but when we got passes out of there... It was a requirement that we had to go to a meeting while we were out on a pass, and I remember arguing with them about it because when you first get passes, it's four hours, and I didn't have a car, and I said, that's not fair. I've I've worked so hard for my four-hour pass, (laughs) and all I can do in four hours is take a bus to a meeting, go to the meeting, and take the bus back. I should be able to do something fun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they said, you know, they don't care. And they had this thing where, like, sometimes they would pop up where you were supposed to be and you never knew if it would be, you know, so you had to do it. And um, and I would tell them, I said, you know, you can make me go to meetings while I'm in here. I will never, ever go again once I'm out. It's pointless. And uh, I'm so grateful. My um, my counselor in there, I call her at least on my birthday every year um, to thank her for what she did for me. But um, when I was uh, 11 months sober, I... am. Um, you know, I'm still, it's the same way. I mean, I'll go to meetings while I'm here, and that's it. And when I was 11 months sober, I, uh, I went, I was out on the pass, and I went to our local um, Alano club, and, uh, and I noticed that they had, you know, there's, like, flyers back there with some upcoming events that have AA speakers coming and workshops and stuff. Well, they had that at the club, and all of a sudden I noticed one day that, um, that there was going to be a spaghetti dinner, and there was going to be a speaker there, and his name was Sandy Beach, who at the time lived in, um, in the D.C. area. And I had this memory that this detox I used to go through a couple or a few times. Um, when Sandy lived in D.C., there was like a 12- or 13-year period of time where he put on a 12-step workshop. It was on Saturday mornings. I think it was called Saturday Morning Live, but I was really new. Um, And it was in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, and my detox used to take us there every week. And the reason I remember it is because I always sat in the back, like I said, and I would always just try to sleep, and that was it. Um, But something, I must have been paying attention because something Sandy said made me laugh. And the reason I remember it is because I remember hearing my voice laugh out loud, and then I remember thinking, why are you laughing in AA? (laughs) This is so lame. (laughs) And so when I was 11 months sober and I saw that, I thought, oh, my God, that's that man that made me laugh. Uh, because I wasn't going to meetings where people were, <laughs> were very joyful, to tell you the truth. And I thought AA was, like, dreary. Like, everyone there just, uh, you know. And that's, you know, that's <laughs> what I projected. That's what I saw around me. And, um, and so I asked permission of my treatment facility if I could go hear Sandy speak. And um, so they sent me on my way. You know, they let me go. And, um, and I'll tell you... Um, you know the magic of God for me i don 't remember a thing Sandy said that night, but I was introduced to an active home group and um, and i didn 't even know what i, I didn 't even know the word home group it, I you know i didn 't know and um, and there were a lot of young people in it, and they were really busy and they were doing a lot of stuff and I was um, you know and there were cute boys there, and I thought I, you know i was I turned 22 in treatment, but I'm 22 years old. I want to know where the cute boys go to meetings. I didn't know cute boys got sober. (laughs) And uh, so I'd be like, oh, where do you guys go to meetings? And, uh, you know, when I got out of treatment a couple months later, I started to go. And then that woman, like I said, she watched me for a few days she says 30, I don't know, but, um, and then she appointed herself as my sponsor, and that's the woman who, um, who had me write out that fourth step, and I did the fifth step with her, and became a garden variety alcoholic, and, uh, and began to identify with the disease of alcoholism. You know, that's the other thing, like, I loved, like, I started to, um, to buy tapes a lot, and, you know, I didn't have very much money, and I, I remember I was telling someone, um, that I, I went to Toys R Us and I could buy a ten dollar Fisher Price kid, um, you know, music cassette thing, and I would put it in my car. Like my car was donated to me by a church, <laughs> and I would just put it. And I remember it was really expensive to replace the batteries because it was four Ds, and it was like that's so much money, you know, at the time. And um, and I would put this little thing next to me in the car and just listen to tapes all the time. I just and it was uh, it was listening to speakers because I, I wasn't sure I was alcoholic, but it was listening to speakers that I began to identify with the disease of alcoholism I didn't know because you know before that I just you know I always shared I never heard people like go through it and and so I you know I didn't identify and then you know I began to read the book Alcoholics Anonymous and I began to identify with the book and um God when I read that especially the first four chapters I think I don't know how I (laughs) I don't I mean I, I identify with the first four chapters of the book Alcoholics Anonymous and um when I got out of um treatment, I had the, um, opportunity to move into the projects, and, um, I, um, <laughs> and at the time, um, I felt really f- sorry for myself about it, and, uh, the truth is it was an opportunity for me. Um, I, uh, I got bumped to the top of a list. There's a lot of, you know, single moms that are waiting for, you know, mm-hmm. to move into housing, and, um, because I went through this long-term treatment facility, I got bumped to the top of that list, but, um, but I didn't see it that way, and, um, I would go to meetings, and I would think, I'm the only person who lives in projects here. And I'm the only person who's a single mom. I'm the only person who doesn't get child support. I'm the only person on welfare. And I would, you know, cry about how hard my life was. And um, (laughs) there was a woman in my home group who once told me, she said, you know, I hope I'm not sitting next to you when you get what you deserve. (laughs) Oh, and I hated her. Um... (laughs) But I just like, I was so unbearable. If you, if God forbid, you call me to a podium, um, or ask me how I am, <laughs> because I will suck the life out of you, <laughs> talking about how hard my life is. And um, <laughs> and I, I, you know, I felt really different. I, I made a lot of um, bad decisions. Uh, one of the worst was um, when I was um, just over a year sober and out of that treatment facility. I finally had a sponsor. And, um, and I was feeling really sorry about myself for myself. Like I'd go out to fellowship, I couldn't afford a cup of coffee um, ever, <laughs> and, um, and you know I felt really bad, you know, about it. And um, like I'm, you know, entitled to free money or something because I'm now sober. But um, and I, I remembered that when I had been fired from that escort service, I had been fired for having track marks, and clearly I didn't have them anymore. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my sponsor once described me as ready, fire, aim. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, well, you know, I don't have track marks. I can go back to work for the escort service. Should you run that by your sponsor? No. (laughs) I already know what she's going to say, but she doesn't understand. She's, you know, I'm a consenting adult. You know, it's none of the government's business anyway. Ready, fire, aim. And a little over a year sober, I went back to work for an escort service thinking, you know, I had it logically worked out in my head. But what I didn't realize is how I would feel about myself, both in the action I was taking and and in the secret I had that made me different from everyone else. And I, I was just sitting in meetings crying all the time. And I, like, I went to seven meetings. I had commitments. I picked up new people. And I would watch someone take... Um, we do chips there. I don't know if you do cakes or chips here, but, but we do chips there. And I would see someone take a one-year chip, and I would think, why are they happy? Like, what happened to them? I, I never understood what happened to them. And as absurd as it sounds to me now because of what I was doing, I didn't understand why their experience was different than mine because I felt like I really was doing everything they were, meetings every day and commitments and all of that. And I couldn't understand why I hated myself um, and why I felt disgusting, and, um, and I realized um, after a number of months that I could not continue to do that and be sober, because I had to drink to numb the way that I felt about myself, and I made the decision somewhere around 18 months sober that I needed to be honest with someone, and I needed to start taking direction, because I always thought, like, it was kind of, that's the thing you do for a couple of hours in the night, like an extracurricular activity. I really didn't understand it as a way of life, and, um, and about 18 months sober, I finally um, told my sponsor everything that I'd been doing, and I remember feeling like I was out of answers I don't (laughs) I don't know how to live like I don't I don't even know how people think you know and I just thought you whatever you tell me to do I'm willing to do it and I'm I just I was out of answers and and um and I had also always been afraid afraid to tell my sponsor about the things that I thought about because I knew I was more disgusting than anyone else (laughs) And, um, and that separated me from them, and when I started to tell my sponsor what happened in my head, she began to relate with me, and I was like, oh, okay. My sponsor would say, um, you know, we're not bad getting good, we're sick getting well, and it just took the pressure off, and... Um, and my sponsor also told me, she said, you know, you probably don't need to tell people how you are anymore. Perhaps for you it would be better if you just put a smile on your face and walk around and act as if you're happy and find out about them. And so um, I started to pretend like I was a happy person. And I'd <laughs> put that smile on my face and uh, walk around, oh, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? <laughs> and, uh, you know, by pretending that I was a happy person, somewhere along the way I became a happy person. And I let go of that depressed, crying mess that I was. And I don't know where it happened. I just remember Looking back and thinking, I don't feel the same way as I used to, and it seemed at the time like I would never be able to get out of that. And um, and the only thing that was missing in my life, because um, I started to you know work the steps and sponsor women, and um, it was really exciting. And the only thing missing in my life was a relationship with God. And, um, and I came here agnostic. I, I was a, agnostic from at least 11, and I remember thinking, like, I know that you guys, I mean, maybe there's a God, maybe not. I don't know, and I know that many of you believe in God and that you feel God. You tell me you feel God, but there is nothing that you can say to me that gives me the feeling of God, so I, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know how you get past that, and um, I didn't know what to do, and when I was, um, Two and a half years sober. And, you know, I lacked the humility to even get down on my knees and pray. Every time I tried, I felt stupid, like it was just air. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, God, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. And um, two and a half years sober, I took a trip out to uh, Anaheim, California, actually to go to Iquipa, and, um, and I was out there, and I um, attended my current home group, the, the Pacific group. I went to their Wednesday night meeting because I'd heard all these speakers from there and, and fell in love with it and decided I, you know, wanted to move there and be a member of that group. Um, on my way back to uh, to D.C., when they called my airplane, I stood up really quickly, and I accidentally hit myself in the eye with my boarding pass, and my eye was really stinging, but I got on the plane, you know, because you hit your eye, and it stings for a little bit, and it goes away, uh, but it didn't go away, and um, I was in an excruciating amount of pain, and when I got off in D.C., my, um, <laughs> I was picked up at the airport and went straight to the emergency room, and <clears throat> found out that I had accidentally clipped off some cornea, actually, um, which is gross, but it's really not a big deal. Um, corneal tissue is the fastest reproducing cell in the body. It's you know you cut your eye. Almost everyone's done it. It stings. It, stings, it sucks, but it grows right back. It's no problem. And and that didn't happen for me. And um, over a couple of months, um, I went totally blind in my left eye. I'm still blind today. I went totally blind in my left eye. I developed an ulcer in my eye. The, the The cornea never healed, so it was always cut, so I was always in pain. It felt like I had necrotizing bacteria. It felt like someone was sticking a hot poker in my eye. And I would get sent from eye doctor to eye doctor to eye doctor. I ended up at uh, Johns Hopkins University, where they have one of the best eye institutes in the world. And, um, you know, my mom would drive me every day, an hour and 15 minutes each way to go there. And um, at one point, um, I had to put eye drops in my eye every half an hour, 24 hours a day for more than a month. And I never had to set an alarm clock to wake me up every 30 minutes because I couldn't sleep that long because of the physical pain I was in. And I was out of my mind, <laughs> in pain. And, you know, I was just out, lack of sleep. I was out of my mind. And, uh, and when I saw the doctors seven days a week, on Sundays, I saw the on-call surgeons making the rounds at the hospital. And one Saturday, um, by the time the doctor fit me in, it was Saturday evening, and And he said to me, you know, Yvonne, there is nothing more we can do for you. 50-50, you're going to lose that eye altogether in the next week. And and I was devastated. And my mom um, drove me uh, back to drop me off at my Saturday night meeting. And on the way there, I decided that the next day I was going to shoot a bag of heroin, specifically heroin. I mean, it wasn't because I felt sorry for myself, although I did. It was because I knew that heroin would immediately just take the pain away. And I felt like I cannot go another 24 hours in this kind of physical pain. I cannot take it. And, um, and at my meeting that night, a woman came up to me and told me that what I needed to do was go home and pray for the removal of the obsession I had with my eye. And I wanted to kill her. <laughs> I don't have an obsession. Doctors at Johns Hopkins don't have an answer for me. I mean, it's absurd. But <laughs> I went home that night, you know, laying in bed for a couple of hours, seething with resentment, thinking of how I could get her back. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, your head gets so loud. Well, and I had learned in AA that when my head is that loud, I just have to take the action just to shut the conversation off. And I remember thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to pray for the rem- whatever. And I got down on my knees, and I, <laughs> I don't know what I said, but I know that the spirit of it was, God, please remove the obsession I have with my eye, whatever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I crawled back into bed, and I fell asleep, um, but I didn't wake up for six hours. And when I woke up, most of the pain was gone. And I just had, I mean, it had been going on for months. And I just had a little bit, just mild, tolerable pain. And, um, and I received, a, you know, and actually my mom picked me up and took me. The doctor who was making the on-call rounds that day was the same doctor who would seen me the night before. And he said he had no medical explanation for the healing that had occurred in my eye overnight. And, um, and I'll tell you that I received my greatest gift that morning. Um, since being an Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a relationship with God. But I also learned the greatest lesson I've ever learned um, because I thought what was happening to me was terrible. It's terrible. This is horrible. It shouldn't happen. But from what I judged to be the worst thing that could happen to me, I received my greatest gift, a relationship with God. And that taught me that I am no longer a good judge of what is good or bad in my life. And, um, and that does not mean I take things gracefully. You know, my, uh, my 15-year-old, and she's four months sober today, you know, whatever, it, worst case scenario, we ruin her drinking. That's all I can say about it, but I'll tell you, when, you know, when she was smoking crystal meth and running away from home at 13 years old, I, um, I was not, you know, (laughs) I was not uh, gracefully saying, you know, (laughs) God has a better plan, but, but the thing is, is that, um, but I was saying it, just not gracefully, and I knew, like, I, I know that that everything I think is bad or anything where I don't get my way and I have it planned just right and it's supposed to go this way and I know it would be perfect. And every time I think that, when I, whenever whatever happens, when I look back at it from a space of a year or five years or ten years, it's always gone so much better than the plan that I had. And so it allows me, you know, when I go through the hard times, to just stay in my seat and know that it will get better. It'll get better, and it'll be better than what I want, wanted for myself anyways. And, um, you know, that little girl of mine, she's, you know, she's fine. I mean, she's not fine. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with her mentally or physically as a result of, uh, of you know what I did to her um, you know hopefully we'll keep her seat in Alcoholics Anonymous but, um, but she's you know she's amazing and um, when the escort service thing didn't work out um, I went back to college and I thought junior college And I thought you know never been a good student but I thought maybe if I got a two-year degree maybe I could move out of the project someday and that was my goal and, um, and I found out that when I go to school sober, and I do what I'm supposed to do, like actually do my homework, or sit up front, ask questions when I don't understand. Like, I, I didn't know how people did school. And um, I did that, and I found out I was a straight-A student. And, um, and after two years at junior college, I had a 4.0, and I was offered um, an academic scholarship to go to the George Washington University. And I went there, and um, and two years later, I graduated first in my field. And my mom got to sit on the White House lawn with my five-year-old daughter in her lap and watch me graduate with honors. And I can never repay Alcoholics Anonymous for that. Um, My mom was uh, diagnosed with cancer a couple months later and then died shortly after that. Um, But when she died, first of all, I was clear with her. I had been able to make amends, and um, I had not been able to pay her back yet. Thank God my sponsor asked me to find out from her what she wanted me to do with the money I owed her. And I'm so grateful for that. But I'll tell you the best thing is that when my mother died, she knew that her granddaughter was safe in my custody because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, she lived long enough to see me start law school. <laughs> and I'm a practicing attorney today um, for a very small Midwestern firm. They have no idea what they've hired. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what, I'm a really good worker, I'm a hard worker, I've learned to be a hard worker in Alcoholics Anonymous, because my sponsor always told me that whenever something is wrong with me, I'm not working hard enough, work harder, be there earlier, help more people, pick them up, you know, and I am, I, you know, you know, today, um, I go to as many meetings as I can, um, you know, as a single mom with a kid in trouble, actually, now that she's going to meetings, it's easier, but, uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, I work with women, I'm clear with my sponsor, you know, I'm current with her, and, um, I go through our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm very committed in my home group. And, um, you know, like I said, it's an, I have an amazing life today, and everything good in my life is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just want to um, share one thing with you, that um, because I always like to remember this myself. Bill Wilson once said that... Um, He said, Alcoholics Anonymous is not the story of our success. Rather, it is the story of our colossal human failures transformed into the happiest kind of usefulness by that divine alchemy, the loving grace of God. Thank you.